Welcome to the Forum at Holy Communion, a long-standing conversation about faith, life, justice, arts, culture. Each week, we will premiere a conversation on our channels, and then on the following Sunday, we join in the conversation with Q and A and a chance to engage on the topic. We're so glad you have joined us. Hello, my name is Michael Booker, and I'm a parishioner over at St. Francis Episcopal Church. And Father Mike Angel has asked me to join you on the 14th with a discussion about this presentation. It's a presentation about a question which is abstract in a sense, but it has enormous practical significance as we try to decide what our proper role is in the world. And so the question I'm going to pose to you and try to answer from the Bible and from the conversation is going to be, who is my neighbor? And there is a very specific time where this question is posed to Jesus we find in Luke's gospel. So I'm going to move you over to a slide presentation here. So in the 10th chapter of Luke, Jesus is presented with a question from a teacher of the law. It's a common scenario in the Gospels. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? The teacher of the law answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And... Love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And that is the question we'll be attempting to investigate. The question of who is my neighbor and what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? Now, I am sure if you've been to church that you've heard these statements before. That the summary of the law being offered here is quite correct, that we're to love God and we're to love our neighbors. But exactly how that's to be implemented and what the extent of that commitment is, that's exactly what I wish to explore. That's the question being posed to Jesus. If we dig into the Greek text that's used here for the 10th chapter of Luke, we find that the word for neighbor is plesion, which means literally someone or something that is nearby. So it's like you would talk about your next door neighbor. That's the way that the word neighbor is being used here, someone or something in your proximity. But we certainly use the word more broadly than that from time to time, and we sometimes use it in a kind of metaphoric sense. So let's do a little digging into this concept and see how it's addressed in the Bible. Now, I'm going to take a little side trip here into the realm of philosophy, a little bit of moral philosophy for you. And this is a question about the duties that we have. Some of the duties that we have are what are called negative duties, which are essentially a duty to leave someone alone. And a positive duty is a duty to provide them with something. So we could take a duty like, for instance, freedom of the press. What kind of duty does that imply? If the freedom of press is merely a negative duty, that means that I have to allow people, if they want to make a newspaper or have a news program or a YouTube channel, I have to endure the fact they might say some things I don't approve of. Now, as a practical matter, we do put some guardrails on that, but that's essentially the notion. 
If it were a positive duty, then I would have a duty to provide someone with a newspaper printing press or with a TV studio or with a computer so they can get on YouTube or, again, whatever the format might be. But we regard this particular political uh, right as a negative right, and that entails a negative duty. There's a deeper question here, too, then, about who I have duties towards. Do I apply it just to my people, or do I apply it universally? Does it apply just to my tribe, or does it apply to the entire human race? This is tempting. It's, there's an answer which seems to want to come to mind very quickly as we think about this. So I give you a little grid right here. If we think about the obligations that we have morally, it may be tempting to say that really we need to take care of everyone, that if someone is hungry, it doesn't matter whether they're next door to me or on the other side of the world. There's a very big practical problem with that as an issue, though. If you were to accept that as a guiding moral principle, we have what I call the air conditioning test, and it goes something like this. If I accept that it's necessary, that I have positive universal duties, so let's just say a, uh, a duty to alleviate hunger for anyone who is hungry, regardless of where they are, their relationship to me, that produces some profound implications on my resources. Um, what, if, what if we have Christmas coming up, right? Everybody's worried about supply chain problems and my child wants to have the latest gaming station. I think that's a PS5, but I'm not really buying gaming stations right now. So I put a picture of one that looks very modern up there and I might be right. Who knows? But what if, in addition to the fact that my child wants a gaming station, there are other children on Earth who don't have enough to eat? And I'm giving you a very sad image there below the game station. Should I be providing my child with toys when other children can't eat? If we're accepting positive universal morals, that seems to be the direction we have to go in. And the reason I call this the air conditioning test is because I like a lot of people, I'm quite fond of air conditioning, but I realize that I have the resources, the energy, and the capital to have air conditioning pretty much everywhere I go. It's at my work, it's at my home, it's in my vehicle. But that's something that we can live without. People have lived in Missouri for millennia without having air conditioning. I don't think that would be much fun, but we would survive. We would be able to deal with that. And why do we get to have air conditioning when other parts of the world can't eat, when they don't have appropriate medical care, safe housing, and all of the many, many things needed to keep body and soul together? This is, or really should be, a very challenging puzzle. So let's go back to what the Bible says about this topic. The teacher of the law is doing a particularly conventional form of rabbinic argumentation, where you really try to dig into the language of the Bible. There is a lot in the Old Testament, and I'm quoting here from Leviticus as one example, that engages with this notion of the neighbor. And so taking a few verses from Leviticus 19, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? I am the Lord. But in context, these passages can sound very much tribalistic. It's about my people, the people who are part of my team. 
and it doesn't have any particular implications for the larger global community. So is the Bible, at least in the Old Testament, merely giving us a kind of tribal moral duty? It's tougher than that. It is a lot more complicated, as you might expect. So also from Leviticus, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So there's a provision here, not for the people who are my buddies, but for the, what they're identifying here as the poor and the foreigner, that they should have access to the, the surplus of my field. And then when we read a bit further, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as a native born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, that little passage taken in isolation starts to look like we don't have any different rules for at least somebody among us who is not one of our people as opposed to someone who belongs to our particular clan. Foreigners also, though, again, pulling in from the same area in scripture, are subject to duties. So it's not simply that we have moral obligations to them, but they have moral obligations if they're going to be here. And they have moral obligations, interestingly enough, not just in basic decent behavior, so not robbing and stealing and killing people, but also in adhering to some components of Jewish law. So that it's specific that they are supposed to adhere to rules like honoring the Sabbath, even if they're not Jewish, not eating blood, even if they're not Jewish, prohibitions against immoral sexuality, human sacrifice, blasphemy, and that they are specifically, while they're with you, to celebrate Passover. So it's not simply a one-way street that we have simply duties to the foreigner in our midst, but they also have duties to the larger community. Again, this is taking from the Mosaic Law. So if we go to chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, we go a little bit further. And now, Israel, what does your Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything that is in it. Yet the Lord set his affections on your ancestors and loved them as he chose you, their descendants above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stick-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourself were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him, hold fast to him, and take your oaths in his name. So again, we have specific obligations here addressing the foreigners in our midst. And this expands, as it were, the circle. So sometimes there's talk. Uh, a very famous philosopher named Peter Singer talks about the expanding circle as the way that we grow our ethical understanding. However, remember, all of this gets more complicated. It's also inherent in the Mosaic Law that there is a kind of double standard from time to time. And so sometimes there are rules where they say, well, 
There's one grill for you, the Jewish people, but if you got any foreigners hanging out, the rules are different for them. So as one example, I don't know if you can see that little image, but uh, some people are rather practical jokers when it comes to roadkill. Do not eat anything that you find already dead. You may give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and they may eat it, or you may sell it to any other foreigner, but you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So in Deuteronomy 14, we have a notion here that we can't eat roadkill, but those other people who are hanging out with us, that's okay for them. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land that you're entering to possess. Um, there's a very long and interesting history about taking interest on loans. One of the reasons the Jews ran into conflict in Europe in the Middle Ages was because they were often the money lenders, because the law would declare that a Christian could not loan money to a Christian, but the Jew could also not loan money to the Jew, but the Jew could loan money to a Christian. And even if you think that loaning money is a bad thing, sometimes you still need to borrow money. Uh, Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice, addresses that particular theme. And then, again, we add more dimensions to this question. When the Lord your God brings you to the land you're entering to possess and dries up before you many nations, again, this is Deuteronomy, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So what we have is a, a situation where we have a Jewish scholar of the law who is handed this rule that we're to love our neighbors. And there are complexities within the teachings that they have inherited that make this, in fact, a very dynamic and interesting question. So he poses it to Jesus. Now, we haven't gotten to Jesus's answer just yet. Don't worry, we're going to get there. But I'm trying to get you to understand why this is a question. Why are we even asking it? It's because the Old Testament's a little different. Now, I can understand if you say, well, we're not Jewish, we're Christians, and we don't have this kind of tribal Jewish ethic that is imposed on us by God in the same way that they do. There's another term that shows up when we start to get into the Christian scriptures. And this is the question of family. So here's an example from Matthew 25, so we're to the words of Jesus now. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, boy, I bet you know this passage, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, I've normally heard this taught as a universal dictate. 
That is that these are people that we must look after as our own, and this is anybody. But the phrase brothers and sisters shows up quite a bit, or just brothers, depending on which translation we're looking at. I'm going to get into the language a little bit on that because I think it's, uh, it's a bit interesting. But are we talking about just other Christians? There are passages over and over again where it could simply say everybody, but instead of saying everybody, it says brothers or brothers and sisters. And I throw that as a question that the text invites. So I was a little annoyed with the NRSV's translation pattern. Now, I am not a Greek scholar by any wild stretch of the imagination. I, I know a little bit about languages here and there. It's, it's very spotty. But when I was reading parallel passages from the NRSV and other translations, I would often find this particular little thing, and it seemed, it seemed a little off to me, and I had to dig into it. And actually, at this point, I think the NRSV is right. It's the New Revised Standard Version, which is often used in the Episcopal Church as a standard translation of the Bible. So the word that we're talking about for brothers and sisters is actually just one word. It's a delphoi. So I'm going to give you another passage that uses Adelphoi. When Jesus was still talking, this is a very different context, still talking to the crowd, his mother and his brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mothers and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother or sister and mother. So brother, <clears throat> is Adelphos in the Greek. The sister is Adelphe, so there's a male and female form of the word. The word that's getting translated here as brothers and sisters, though, is one word, which is Delphoi, and that means literally brothers. So many of your older translations of the Bible are simply going to say brothers, and this goes on all over the New Testament. But we have the words brothers and sisters showing up. So again, my, my source of, of irritation was to say there's one word here, but you're giving me two words here, and that seems like you're doing something funny with the translation. It turns out there's a good reading for this, a good reason for this, and I'm not sure how much language exposure you've had. Once I heard what was going on there, I immediately thought back to when I started to take French lessons in junior high. And one of the things you run into in French, which is parallel to the issue we're talking about here, and this is, this is a little side excursion we're taking, but I think it's worth talking about, is that if you want to say they in French, you've got two ways to do that. You've got a masculine version and a feminine version. The masculine version is il, I-L-S, and the feminine version is l-e-l-l-e-s. Okay. Now, if I have 50 men, I use il for all of them, those guys over there. If I have 50 women, I use L, E-L-L-E-S for all those women over there. But if I have a mixed group, any kind of mixed group between men and women, I use the masculine plural. This struck me as really weird when I first learned it, because again, it is kind of odd to our ears. Though I've got to say is, you know, someone who speaks English as a first language, I really am not in a position to criticize somebody else's language structure. But the logic here is, whether you are thrilled with this or not, is that if I have 49 women and one guy, I use the masculine plural. If there are any men there at all, it uses the masculine plural. Only if there is a pure group 
of just women do I use the feminine plural? And the Greek language is doing the same thing here. And that's why we end up with the puzzle here because Adelphoi means brothers. It means brothers in the male plural sense. But linguistically, if you have a mixed group and there are plenty of contexts where this shows up and it's very clear that it's a mixed group, you still use the male plural to represent a mixed group of men and women. So given that the group is mixed group of men and women, you've got not simply brothers because the English simply means that that would be men, we would say brothers and sisters. And so the translation is actually quite, quite reasonable. There are some attempts, I know our bishop likes to use the word siblings in Christ from time to time. The word sibling does the same thing as, as sort of a, of a neutral plural. The only challenge there is it's a very clinical word. I think of it as more of a word that goes in legal documents than in casual conversation with people. I, I can't imagine if I if my family were constructed as such coming home for a family reunion and say, hello, siblings. That just feels off in English, but you know, maybe we're going to change the way that we use words. So I'm not asking you to prove this. I'm saying that this term, brothers and sisters, is the male plural, which is used for mixed groups. And we will then get back to the story at hand. So you see this being offered over and over again in scripture that you have in the New Testament, this notion of caring for our brothers or brothers and sisters, perfectly accurate translation there. And you're still left kind of scratching your head going, is this just an in-crowd thing where I'm talking about the duties that I have to my fellow Christians? So is, is Jesus saying there that if I have another Christian in prison, I'm supposed to visit him? But if I've got a Hindu, a Muslim, or an atheist in prison, who cares? What exactly is going on here? So we return to the start of the story. Jesus has asked this question, who is my neighbor, which is an interesting kind of open-ended question in, uh, in the Jewish text. And what does he do? He gives us a story. And it's a really clever little story here for addressing this question. So in reply, Jesus said, this is getting us back to Luke 10 now. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, this I'm sure you've heard this story before. It's one of the most famous ones we get to hear from Jesus. Again, interestingly, we only find this in Luke's gospel. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. Now, there's a little piece here. You may have heard this in plenty of sermons because this is a very familiar story. But I will just add here in case you're not perfectly clear on the fact of, of what the Samaritan is. 
the good Samaritan here, the Samaritan in the story, is our protagonist. He's not the guy who gets beaten up, of course. The Samaritan belongs to a kind of half-breed, what the Jewish people in the days of Jesus would consider a kind of half-breed, corrupted, heretical form of Judaism. They sort of had a Judaism, but not a Judaism that was recognized as anything even remotely tolerable. And they were considered worse than non-Jews because they had corrupted Judaism. So Jesus very cleverly does not have the hero be the Levite or the priest. The good person here happens to be someone who is a rather despised individual. And so there's a kind of, I'll say a kind of shaming going on by the fact that the Samaritan is better than the other people. Um, the denarius is a day's wage. So he's leaving, you know, fill in the blank of how much two days wages would be, but it's a reasonable amount of money to leave behind to try to take care of this person who's uh, going to need to stay in the hotel for a while and might need a bit more medical help. So I'm going to leave this as a question for you. Again, I love a good question, and scripture really gives us a delightful one. We live in a world of many, many needs. There are billions of human beings on Earth. A couple of billion of them live in absolute poverty. Uh, international organizations define absolute poverty as something like they only get a dollar and a half a day to live on. The number changes from time to time, but it's an unimaginably tiny amount of money to try to survive on. And certainly if you imagine uh, having family with such limited uh, resources, it, it, it's dreadful. Survival becomes uh, very tenuous. The problems of the world greatly exceed our own resources. But we still have the notion that we are supposed to be bringing good to the world and regarding other people as worthy of Jesus's love and attention and therefore worthy of our help. So I will pose to you exactly what the extent of our resources are. Again, you can go back to the practical question. At what point do I get to have air conditioning? At what point do I get to give my kids uh, a new gaming system? When do we hit that? When has the world been done enough good to make that something which would be morally tolerable? So I think we can have a really fun conversation about this, maybe a little bit of a, a painful one, but I think it is well worth our time. So thank you very much, and I look forward to seeing you on Sunday.